0: Alright, good morning everyone. How's everybody doing? Good, I'm glad to see you all. You may notice we're, uh, we're missing a few folks today. We have a team in El Salvador. We prayed for them and they're there. Rachel, I'm going out of order here, but we put the, there's a picture at the end of the, the slides there. An image should be, image something. There it is. I don't know if you can see it. They made it to El Salvador. There's our crew. Mike doing his thing there. He just he said he felt the moment, and so he decided to go with it, laying across the front. But they made it safe and sound. That's, uh, yeah, that's him on the bottom. Yep, yep. They made it safe and sound, and that's all we know at the moment. So hopefully we'll be getting more updates from them as they go. Um, but we miss them. Grateful that they made it there safe, and we are just gonna keep trucking without them. Yeah, they would do it without us if the if the if the tables were turned. So. Um, <laughs> Here we go. We're going to dive right in. We're gonna, I have a few announcements, nothing major at the end, but we're going to dive straight into Scripture out of worship. Um, so we're going to be in Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Here we go. Now, a man named Ananias. Now, hold, before I get too far in this, I have been reading and, and preaching this passage for a long time now, and I just this week discovered I've been saying that name wrong. I I know, I was shocked. I thought it was Ananias, but if you look at it on the screens, it's Ananias. Does everybody see that? I even looked it up in Greek to make sure that I was doing it. It, It's Ananias and not Ananias. And so all week, I know, it's blowing my mind. It's blowing my mind. And all week I've been trying to say Ananias, but it just messes with me. So I'm just going to, just so everybody knows, I'm just going to keep saying it wrong. Is that okay? Does that work for everybody else? Okay, we're just going to go with Ananias because it just feels better. Okay, here we go. So... Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. Also meaning, if you remember from the previous week, there was a guy named Barnabas who sold a piece of property and gave all the money to the apostles. So now this is the other side of the story. Also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself. But brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said to Ananias, How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept some of the money you you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not just lied to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the Spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Okay, so here's what we're going to do now. We're going to pass the offering baskets. You feeling it? Just kidding. Uh, We don't actually have offering baskets here. Um, Plus, this passage actually has nothing to do with money. We're going to talk about that. Nothing whatsoever to do with money. That's not the point at all. Um, But what is the point? I mean, Acts has been fun so far, hasn't it? You guys been enjoying the series so far? I have. I've learned a lot. I've I've really enjoyed what we've studied together, the opportunities that we've we've been able to lean in and practice together. And this is not one of those things I want to practice. Anybody else with me? We don't want to see this kind of stuff happening in our church. Um, So what just happened? That's what I'm wondering. What happened in the book of Acts? And uh, why did Luke choose this particular story to tell? Um, Again, because it happened. But you have to remember that Luke is writing the history of the early church, which spanned about 30 years. So from the beginning of the book of Acts to the end is about 30 years of time, give or take. Um, And uh, in 30 years, a lot happens. He could have told a lot of different stories, and yet he chose this one as important. Uh, Now, keep in mind, too, who Luke is writing to. He's writing to a guy named Theophilus, who's a Gentile, either Gentile convert to Christianity, so a new Christian, or a Gentile seeker who wasn't sure. Actually, that's probably where I tend to lean, is This is a person who's outside of the community of Israel, outside of the community of faith, that heard about the gospel and had questions. So he sent Luke to write the story. He sent Luke to research. And so Luke is writing a a book for seekers. And he chose to include this story. Apparently Luke had a different definition of seeker sensitive than we do. (laughs) Because I wouldn't have chosen to tell this story. I would have kind of glossed over it. I feel uncomfortable just reading it out loud. I mean, you hear me chuckling when people die. It's not because I think it's funny. It's I'm uncomfortable, right? (laughs) We're all uncomfortable with this kind of a story. Um, So why is it here? What's Luke trying to tell us? Um, I've discovered over the course of the past few weeks studying this text that he's trying to tell us the same thing he's been telling us from the beginning of the book of Acts, which is the church is the body of Christ. The church is the temple of the living God and we need to treat it accordingly. That's what he's trying to say. It's a community in which God lives himself by his presence. Remember we talked on the day of Pentecost now, uh, or when when we were talking about the day of Pentecost several months ago, we talked about this idea that wherever the fire of God lands is the house of God. That's a marker of God's presence when fire falls. And that's how the book of Acts starts, with these tongues of fire alighting on each person, marking each one of them the temple of the living God. The temple is no longer a location, but it's now a people. God lives within a people. And we've loved that so far, because that means power. That means miracles. That means compelling, radical community. That means generosity. That means signs and wonders. It means all of these amazing things. All of these things happen when heaven and earth collide in a people. But also, remember that the temple of God is not just about potlucks and miracles and signs and wonders. It's about the presence of a holy God. And this story seems pretty consistent with what I read about the presence of a holy God throughout the rest of the Bible, doesn't it? If the church is the temple of God, I want to take you on a quick tour of the temple today to kind of make sense of this story. Really give you three visuals out of the temple in Jerusalem. Solomon's temple, Herod's temple. Pick which, whichever one you want. But the temple in Jerusalem, the three visuals, it'll help us understand what's happening in the story. The first one is at the very center of the temple is a curtain. This curtain surrounds something called the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And within the holy of holies is the presence of God in a particular way. Now, we know that God created the whole world, and so he is everywhere, generally. But sometimes his presence is in a specific place, or as we see in the book of Acts, in a people, in a particular and special way. And that's what Jews believed about the temple, that God's presence lived in the holy of holies in a unique way. Yes, he fills all the heavens and the earth, but here... His presence just saturates the very air, so much so that no one goes in to the Holy of Holies except the high priest. One time a year, after going through this extensive purification process, external and internal, then the high priest goes in. You guys have all heard the stories. He has bells tied along the edge of his robe so that he makes noise when he moves. Meaning if you don't hear the bells anymore, that means the priest messed up and violated the presence of God and is now laying dead on the floor because that's what happens in the presence of a holy God. And they tied a rope around his foot so nobody had to go in and get him out. You just drag him back out again if you stop hearing the bells. This is real stuff. In the holy of holies, no one goes. There's a fear. There's a a sense of, of intensity there. The word that came to mind this week in preparation is awesomeness. And this is a word that in our culture has lost all meaning, hasn't it? Have you seen the Lego movie? <laughs> everything is awesome. No, it's not. You know, to, to borrow a line from another movie, if everything is special, then nothing is, right? If everything is awesome, then nothing is. We've lost the meaning of this word. In our culture, anything can be awesome. Restaurant, song, boyfriend, girlfriend, in and out, fantastic. Awesome? No. Right? Anything can be awesome. But that word literally means something that inspires awe, something that inspires this sense of, like, slack-jawed wonder, like I am standing in absolute amazement. The word awesome should convey this idea of danger as well. You know, the, the, the picture in my mind is like you're scaling a cliff and you're hanging off the side by one hand. Anybody seen, I'm, I'm, I'm referencing a lot of movies today. They're just coming to my mind. Anybody seen the movie Free Solo? Yeah. If you guys haven't seen this, you have to watch this. It's about this guy who free climbs by himself, El Capitan, in, in Yosemite. And there's this moment where he has to do this maneuver, like, I don't know, a thousand feet in the air, and he basically is hanging off this cliff by his two thumbs that he's crossed over on this rock. That's the picture. That, that's awesome. You look behind you, and you have this view that's just breathtaking and stunning that no one else in the world has, unobstructed by anything, but you might die. You know what I mean? Surfers, it's like, I, I've never done this, but it's like you're riding a, a mega wave, you know, like, You've chased one down and you're coming down the face of it and it's incredible, the power and the rush. You've never felt more alive but you just might die. That's what awesome means. That's what awesome means and that's what we see of this God in his presence is life. You've never been more alive than when you're standing in the presence of God because you are near to the creator of life but be careful because you just might die. (laughs) And I'm not just being metaphorical here. You guys, some some of you in the room are reading through the Old Testament with us right now. This stuff happens in the Old Testament, doesn't it? You guys remember Moses says, God, I want to see your face. and, And God says, here's the best I'll do for you. I'll put you in this kind of cave in a rock. And I'll walk past you, and I will cover the cave with my hands as I walk past. And as I leave, you can look at my back, because no one can see me and live, he says. No one can see me and live. You guys remember Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu? In Leviticus chapter 10, the Bible says they offered strange fire to the Lord, whatever that means. I think it means fire from an unsanctioned place. In other words, not fire from the altar, but fire from a campfire. And they brought it into the presence of God and immediately fire fell from the presence of God and they died in the presence of God. The Old Testament uses the word holy. Holy, God is holy. He says... To Aaron, after his two sons have died, among those who approach me, I must be treated as holy. You don't just come casually into my presence. You don't just come with whatever you want to bring and and, and expect that to be okay. You come with a sense of reverence and awe and respect into the presence of the Almighty God. That's what he says. He's holy. He's not. Here's what holy means. He's not one of us. Holy means separate, set apart, different. Holiness, when we talk about God, it's the characteristic that makes God God. It's taking all of his attributes that he is perfectly and summing them up in one word. It's what makes him him and not one of us. And that holiness is for real. It's absolute. It's inviolable. I know this is heavy stuff. But so profound, so weighty is the holiness of God that even objects that are placed in his presence become holy. They become saturated with his presence to the point that you don't even want to touch those. He says of the Ark of the Covenant that's been sitting in the tabernacle in the center of of, of the Holy of Holies, don't touch it. Don't touch it. It's holy. And then... (laughs) In one of the stories, there's this guy named Uzzah, Uzzah, whatever you want to call him. He's walking along. He's a priest. He's a Levite. His whole life he's learned, you don't touch the box. His whole life he's heard it. And yet, they're walking along, and the the, the box, the ark is on a cart, and the oxen stumbles, and it starts to fall. And Uzzah, despite knowing he's not supposed to touch it, out of the best intentions, reaches out and touches the box and immediately falls down dead. You don't touch the box. Because It's holy. It's saturated with the presence of God. You know, there are these angels that pop up from time to time in the Bible. They're called seraphs. Have you guys heard this? Seraphim. Have you heard that phrase? In Hebrew, it literally literally means burning ones. Why do they burn? They burn with the presence of God because they're the ones who stand closest to him. And even in his presence, they cover their faces. And they're a light by his power. Now, what does that say about this story? Well, these two people walked into his presence and pretended like he wasn't there. They walked into the temple of the living God and ignored him completely. No reverence, no awe, no respect. Guys, there is no one like him there's no one like him. And I don't say that in the way that I say there's no one like everybody else, you know, that you're a unique, special, special snowflake or butterfly or whatever. That's not what I mean. (laughs) I mean there is no one like him in all of creation. There is nothing that even compares, that even comes close. You take everything that is good and right and beautiful and it all exists completely in him. I've heard people talk about how God is both justice and he's love and and how can these two things coexist within him and, and, and talk as if there's this tension, but there's not. Somehow he manages to incorporate justice and love holy within himself all the time. He is the creator God, the only person of whom the verb create can be used, the only one who can speak something out of nothing. That cliff you're hanging off of by your thumbs, he made it. That 30-foot wave that you're riding about to die, he makes it move by his will. Anything you've ever been amazed or blown away by, whether in nature or in another person, he spoke into being. I love the way, I, I, I know we quote C.S. Lewis a lot in here, specifically the Chronicles of Narnia, but I love the way he describes this God when he's talking about Aslan, the lion. You guys have heard me say this before, but it's so good. Lucy shows up into Narnia, and she hears about Aslan, and she says, who's that? And, and the beaver says, he's the king of the woods. What do you mean, who's that? He's a lion, and Lucy says, a lion, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. Of course he's not safe, but he's good. That's what we're talking about here. Yes, we talk often in this place, and we should, about the goodness of God that he's gentle, that he's kind, that he's loving. Yes, yes, we should always be talking about this. But in context. We have to talk about it in context of the holy God who is unapproachable in holiness because the other stuff doesn't mean anything if you don't hold that first. If you don't hold that picture of don't touch the box in your mind or of the curtain that is closed and no one goes in and even the high priest goes in trembling one time a year. If you don't hold that picture of Mount Sinai shaking with the power of God, if you don't hold that picture of the cosmic God speaking the universe into existence, then his gentleness or goodness or kindness means nothing. But when you have that in your minds, the fact that he loves you and is with you, well, that's mind-blowing, isn't it? When you realize that through Christ, the veil is ripped in half, and now he invites everyone into his presence. It's a game changer. But don't walk in casually. Just because he's your father, and just because you can come in and run on his lap and, and be in his presence, doesn't mean you should forget who he is. And that's what Ananias and Sapphira did. They walked into the temple of the living God and ignored him entirely. That's the root of the problem. And I do that all the time. Anyone else? I mean, I'm not just talking about Sundays. I'm talking about every day. But let's just talk about Sundays for a second. I show up here early in the morning and start setting up, and it's so easy to be on autopilot. Just to start bringing in gear and start greeting people and you grab your coffee and you grab your donut and you go through your rhythms and your routines and you walk in here and the songs are playing and we're kind of getting in and it's like there's this moment of, there has to be this moment of, do I realize what I'm doing right now? Do I realize who I'm talking about? Who I'm talking to? that we are showing up to a community of people filled with the Spirit of God. And therefore, we are assembling every Sunday a temple in this place. Not because of the place, but because of the people. You are living stones in the temple of God. And when we get together, we assemble a temple. We assemble a most holy place that God lives by his particular presence. And yet, sometimes I just walk in casually as if it's just a social club. A weird one where we sing songs and stuff. (laughs) You know what I mean, though? God forbid. As a song I once heard goes, God forbid that I find you so familiar that I think of you as less than who you are. God forbid that I should speak of you at all without a humble reverence in my heart. That's the first image I want to hold in our minds that helps make sense of this story. The curtain. The second image, moving out into the next courtyard, is an altar. A brazen altar. And that altar signifies the sins of God's people. That on that altar, sacrifices were made to atone for, that is, to make right what had been put wrong through sin. And that altar represents how seriously God takes sin among his people. And that altar, the New Testament will tell us, actually points to something else. Not too far from there, a cross. Where God himself suffered to show us how seriously he takes sin among his people. And I camp out on this. Because we don't take sin seriously at all these days. In the last couple of decades, it's actually, people now feel uncomfortable even using the word in society. When's the last time you heard anybody outside of a church not mockingly use the word sin? The concept is all but dead because in our culture today, the mantra of society is do whatever feels right to you. The highest and best virtue today is independent self-actualization. Whatever I want to do, whatever I feel I should be able to do, there are no standards now except the standard of the self which, if you read the Bible, just means another kind of slavery. Judges 17, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Today, people would stand up and clap if we said that, but in the Bible, that's a bad thing. You don't want to do whatever you want, whatever you can do, whatever you feel like doing. Sin's a real thing that God takes seriously because it damages his people. In Ananias and Sapphira, they sinned against God. They violated his holiness. I said a second ago, they walked into his presence and ignored him entirely. Why did they ignore him? Because they were focused on something else. And that's the definition of sin. Real simple. The definition of sin is replacing God with something else. That's what happened with Adam and Eve. Adam, God says to Adam and Eve, Whole garden is yours. Relationship with me is yours, just not that tree. And they say, we'll take the tree. And we do the same thing. We've done the same thing ever since. We replace God with an alternative. And Ananias and Sapphira replace God with something else. With what? Themselves. It's ego is what it comes down to. That's what they did wrong. Their sin is not stinginess. Did you guys notice that? They're actually, if we saw them today... And we saw what they did. We'd probably think, that's incredibly generous. They sold a piece of land that was theirs, and they gave a portion of the proceeds to the church. I mean, if that happened today, I would be, that's incredible. Thank you so much. Your generosity is astounding. The sin is not stinginess. It's ego. It's pride. And you get that when you see the comparison with Barnabas. In the previous passage, it says, Barnabas whose name means son of encouragement, had a piece of land and he sold it and he gave all the proceeds to the apostles. And then there's this couple named Ananias and Sapphira. So what happened to them? They wanted to be like Barnabas. Or at least they wanted to be seen to be like Barnabas. So at the root of Ananias and Sapphira was this deep insecurity. That's what it comes down to. They weren't confident in who they were and who God made them to be. And that's where all sin begins. The Garden of Eden, again, gives us the paradigm in Genesis chapter 3. The serpent comes to them and says, did God really say? No, no, no. God, God is withholding from you. You are missing out on something. And you see that insecurity is the beginning of sin. It's not sin itself. If you feel insecure, that's not sin itself. It's the beginning of sin. Because the insecurity says being made in the image of God and in relationship with God is not enough. You need something more. You need something more. And so the insecurity in them is, it's, it's beginning to shake the foundations of their lives. They don't feel like they're enough. And then they see Barnabas, this son of encouragement. He gets a nickname. We want a nickname. We want to be, we be well-known and well-spoken of among the apostles and among the church So we'll do what Barnabas did, only that's pretty costly. (laughs) This land that we have is worth a lot of money. And so they'll never know. They'll never know if we just give them a portion. I mean, maybe the portion they gave was even more than Barnabas gave. Who knows? We'll just give a portion, and we'll say we gave the whole thing, and then everyone will pat us on the back like they did Barnabas. And then we'll be enough. Then we'll be something So insecurity leads to comparison. My friends, comparison, and this is speaking as a consummate people pleaser. Comparison is the death of the life of the Holy Spirit in you. He made you to be you, and he fills you specifically with his presence and his power for a unique calling and mission here. And if you spend all of your time fixated on someone else's mission and calling, you will miss your own. And then you'll begin to make compromises along the way to get what they have. And that's what they did. They make a compromise. They deceive the church. Peter (laughs) Peter sees right through it, though, in a heartbeat. He says, look, you're not lying to me. You're lying to God. Your sin has caused you to conspire against the Holy Spirit now do you hear that language he used so strong you are actively now in opposition to what the Holy Spirit's doing it's not just a small thing it's not just a little white lie you are in opposition to his work and this takes us to the third visual so we have the curtain in the middle we have the 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 brazen altar where sin is taken very seriously And then in the outer courtyard, we have these four menorah, but not what we think of, these little candlesticks. They're 70 feet high. And they have these huge basins filled with oil. And when they light, there's a a source in the Talmud that says they illuminate the entire city of Jerusalem. Why? Because God designed the city of Jerusalem to be a city on a hill, a light to the nations. The temple we see in the Old Testament is the center point of God's missional work. And one day, the Bible says, all nations will be drawn to the temple and experience there the goodness and presence of God as they see this light, this city on a hill. And that's what God intends the church to be. He says to his disciples, you're the light of the world. You are a city set on a hill. No one takes that light and puts it under a basket. You put it on high up on a stand to shine. That's why he creates us. He has created us, church, for a specific purpose, for a mission in the world. And because he cares about that mission, he intervenes here. You see, this is the foundation. This is the origin story of the church. And if corruption comes in here, the whole thing falls apart. And God is not about to allow that to happen. He is so protective of his church in this moment because he has work for them to do, because he loves the world. And it's through his church he intends to bring the world back into relationship with him, to reconcile and redeem all things to himself. And so he doesn't allow it in this moment to go off track. Instead, he intervenes decisively, fiercely, And I don't like it any more than you did, than you do as we read this. But it's a sign of his love. It's a sign of his grace. You see, I talked a second ago how how often we see justice and love as as these two competing things in the heart of God. But they're the same thing. God's justice, his wrath, his anger at the things that kill his people and his love are the same thing. If you're a parent in the room, you know this. Sometimes your anger at your kid and your love are the same thing. So as a friend of mine describes, it's this this river, God's love is this river that is rushing to the restoration of all things, to the healing of the nations. And if you find yourself swimming downstream with that river, you experience the river as love, carrying you along, sweeping you along. But if you turn and you try to swim upstream, You're going to get a mouthful of water. You're going to experience the river as wrath, as opposition. Has the river changed? No. But our orientation to it has. And we see Ananias and Sapphira here. They have misoriented themselves to God's river. They are now conspiring against the work of the Holy Spirit. And God says in this moment, at this point in the history of the church, I cannot allow it. And I imagine, with tears in his eyes, he pronounced judgment. And this story terrifies me because I do all these things. It doesn't terrify me because I think he's going to strike me down in the moment. But I do. I walk into his presence completely unaware on Sundays and every day. I mean, if I'm filled with the Holy Spirit then every day is holy. You know, he said to Moses, take off your shoes. The place you're standing is holy ground. Well, if the spirit of God fills us the way it filled the burning bush, if the fire of God has fallen upon us, then we probably ought to walk around barefoot all the time, right, Daniel? Am I right? We should take off our shoes in our own life. Be aware of the holiness of each moment. this story of insecurity and comparison and, and, and grasping alternatives, that's, I just, I, I shudder to think how true of me that is. How often I find myself, looking you know, I was just at this big conference last week and it was great in a lot of ways, 6,000 people, pastors worshiping together, but man, there were so many times when I felt small and insignificant. Why? Because I'm watching some big celebrity superstar. And I don't want that to be me, but there's a part of me that does. If I'm really being honest, I start to compare my ministry to theirs, my journey to theirs. This, I'm in my 40s. This person's in their 20s. What, like, what, how am I sitting in this seat? You know, All this stuff just starts to come up, and you're like, God, how after all these years of following you am I still dealing with this? Now, I'm dealing with it less than I used to, but it's still there, and that scares me. Because... It means I might miss what God's up to. If I spend too much time there, I might not just miss it, I might be opposed to it. At some point, I could be an obstacle to God's work in his church. and God forbid. And don't worry, he doesn't go around removing people like this very much anymore. I mean, at least not that I know of. <laughs> but... Um, but I don't know if I feel great about that. I mean, it's not that I want it to start happening, but he, like, so cared about this church that he removed anything that stood in the way of the work he wanted to do through it. And I want him to care about my life that much, don't you? About our church that much. Not that he goes around striking people down, but that he will not... He sees this church and us as so vital in this city, in this community, that he won't allow anything that gets in the way of what he wants to do. And so he refines us and he purifies us and he constantly makes us aware of his presence and his love and his goodness. He won't let us walk casually in. He gives us a real sense of awe and humility. I want that, don't you? Because being the temple of God is not just about The fun stuff. It's not just about the signs and the wonders. Look, these people stood in the presence of God and said, We want you to take us seriously as your people. And God did. He said, Okay, I'll take you seriously. And here is power and presence and signs and wonders and judgment, because that's what it means for God to take us seriously as his temple. I know it's a heavy word for today, guys, and I don't want to live in the heaviness forever because the same God we're talking about here, he loves us and he's for us and he's good. But don't just rush there or you're just going to end up with this big teddy bear that's not God at all. We've got to start here. And then the fact that he loves us enough to discipline us. That's what the Bible says. Those he loves, he disciplines. Enough to remove the stuff in us that kills us and kills our purpose. Well, that blows your mind. That God loves me that much. Just stand up with me. just take a a few seconds in this room um, just to recognize where we are. That's it. We always like to respond in worship, to take time to sing our prayers in response to God after we hear his word. And today, as we do that, I just want to be aware of who we're talking to. That's it. I have no like really programmed response time. I just feel like God wants to kind of remind us tonight of who He is, today of who He is. And so take just a few minutes and just stand in His presence. Remember who you're talking to, remember who you're praying to. Lay down anything that's getting in the way. And that could just be normal, kind of benign things like busyness, stress, thoughts about what you're going to have for lunch, whatever else. It might just be something normal or it might be something that's, that needs to be laid on the altar and and crucified (laughs) with Jesus. There may be a moment right now of confession and repentance. Or it could just be a moment of like, breathe. Be present to the one who's present to you. See him as he is. This is going to be a little strange, but we're going to take about two or three minutes in just silence. No music, no nothing. You can stand, you can kneel. Let's, Let's, I mean, sit if you really need to, but I just don't really see people sitting in the presence of a king. So let's posture our bodies in a way that's appropriate to him we'll just stand in silence for a bit or kneel in silence for a bit or even if you want to, I know it seems weird, but lay face down. Do whatever he's asking you to do and in a few minutes, we'll begin to respond in worship when it feels like we're ready. We know what we're doing.